in this series, we're learning how to be loved by God, what it means that God loves us, what it means to be uh, the beloved children of God. And part of this conversation, one of the things we have to do is we have to distinguish the fact that, or between God loving the world and God loving his children. So when I say that God loves you, he does, just not the way that a lot of people think. When I say that God loves the world, on the other hand, he does, just not the way that most people think. So we need to establish that not everyone is a child of God. And that might frustrate your theology and go against what you were taught in church. Not everyone's a child of God. We, we're, we come from God. We're image bearers of God. We're made in his image. We're made to be in his likeness. But not everyone's a child of God. Jesus makes this clear. John makes this clear. The New Testament authors make this very clear. And all throughout the Old Testament, there are those who are children of the devil, children of darkness, enemies of God, dead in sin, wicked rebels, who you don't believe. And then there are those who are children of God through faith. There are those who trust in God and are beloved children. And that's why Jesus will say, there's a a difference between the children of the devil and the children of God, right? there's, There's a difference between those who are of the light and those who are of the darkness, those who are dead, those who are alive. So yes, everyone is made by God. We're sourced or our, our, um, existence comes from God. He's the source of our life and breath and, and existence, but not everyone is a child of God. First, or John chapter 1 makes it very clear that we need to be born again to be given the right to be children of God. Okay, so I want to show you, we've already established that we are beloved. As, as, as children of God through faith, we believe, believe in Jesus. I'm already stuttering because I'm excited. We've already established what it looks like to live as beloved children of God. And, and we've looked at the love of God in scripture last week. Now today to end this whole thing, we need to make it clear that God does love the world. He very much does. And as I was preparing for this, I just kept coming. Uh, I just kept finding myself overemphasizing the fact that God loves his children differently than the world and it would be to the it would almost minimize the fact that God, no God loves the world and so I'm trying to balance these things and make you know that I am not saying God doesn't love the world the unbelievers those who are separated he loves them but it is different it is different than the way he loves his people and if you didn't know that this might be a surprise to you it might shock you a little bit you might be initially frustrated and opposed to it but this is reason I'm going here is because when we just make a general blanket statement that God loves all people well those of us who are children born again through faith and we belong in his family it it I don't know it just doesn't carry the same oomph you know the same power when you're like oh same way he loves an unbeliever so what's different about children of God there is a difference we're beloved the unbelieving world yet they have the chance to be that they have a chance to be born again regenerated and trust in jesus everyone does but until they do they're actually not beloved the way we are so if i asked you does god love the world you'd say yes absolutely and what if i what if i said you're half right so i'm going to show you that god does love the world but then i'm going to make it even more clear if you already know this it's going to be more clear that the love he has for us is is so profoundly different. It is still love. He is love to all people. There's a way to make sense of this, and I know some people are already tuning out, but I just want to magnify His grace, not just in general, but specifically for the people of God. 
I want to magnify his love and mercy and distinguish that from those who are unbelievers who don't have that yet. They can. And this should at least um, cause you to love God even more, fear him even more, treasure him even more, be more thankful. This should cause you to have a kind of, wow, that's how he treats me. It should leave you in awe. And so let me take you to Matthew chapter 5. We'll start our journey here. Matthew chapter 5, verse 44, Jesus says, But I say to you, love your enemies. Pray for those who persecute you. Is that a command? Seems to be. Doesn't seem like a suggestion, does it? Love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you? That's hard. And he goes, so that, this is key, so that you may be sons of your Father who is in heaven. Now, this is not changing identity or becoming something you're not already, but this is more likened to imitating your father, proving to be um, children of God. For he makes his son... Now, now, this is very important. Here's why he brings this in. God makes the son rise, his son, rise on the evil and on the good. I find it interesting that he references the son, flaming ball of gas that makes for life and if you get too close it actually makes for destruction destroys life but the sun here is something that god commands to rise on who the evil and the good this is important very important and he sends his reign another thing god is in control of all the forces of nature are at his disposal he makes the rain fall or sends it on the just and the unjust why does God make no distinction this is what it means in the context for us to love our enemies that's the call here love your enemies how does God do that well he sends his son allows that to rise sends his reign allows that to come on the evil the good the just the unjust there is no distinction So the first thing that you're going to see is that God does love the world. But in this specific way, he sustains life. He sustains the life, the temporary worldly life here on planet Earth. He sustains that life, the life of the good, the life of the evil, the life of the just, the life of the unjust. Now, you might have a problem with that, but this is God's mercy. Because what God is doing is he's sustaining life, and here's how he loves the world. He sustains them so they can be allowed to to seek for him and find him. He sustains them long enough for them to have the opportunity to find God and believe and trust in him for salvation. He makes provision for that. He allows for that by giving them life. You can't find God, seek for him, believe in him unless you're alive. Okay, so here we have this call to love enemies and the call is to pray for those who persecute you. He gives you an example and God is the ultimate example of what it looks like to even love his enemies, love those who are against him. How does God do that? Well, I think we could for sure say he makes for their life to be possible, but also you might say he doesn't just make the sun rise on them. He actually sends his one and only son to be the greatest, you know, light that shines upon them so they can have spiritual life. This is what um, Paul says in Acts 16. This is going to break some of your categories. I get that. But I hope you'll hang around long enough to let me prove from the scriptures what I'm saying. Acts chapter 16, it says, 
Um, is this the right passage? No, it's not. It's not the right passage. Next. It might be six. Next 17. Silly goose. Come on. This is what Paul says. And God, this is the he here, he made from one man every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth. And watch what he does. Having determined allotted periods and the boundaries of their dwelling place that they should seek him. This is why there are people all around the world where they are and the circumstances they are, finding themselves how they are. They're the circumstances of life and their environment and atmosphere and upbringing and childhood, all of that, God has strategically put in place so that every person has opportunity to seek for him and perhaps feel their way toward him and find him. He leaves the ball in their court. He's made provision. He sustains life. He makes it possible so that people, men and women alike, children can seek for God and find him through faith. So that when the opportunity presents itself and they become aware of the gospel, they're positioned to receive it and believe. Here's the key passage that everyone will run to when you say, does God love the world? That's John 3.16, man. I got a tattoo on my back. I got it right here on my coffee mug. I got it on the back of my car. Got on my driver's license. Okay, I get it. Jeez, you love John 3.16. I hold it at every 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 professional game I go to. I have a sign. Everyone runs to John 3.16. But this is it within the context of, well, let's just read it. And I'll explain my thoughts. It says, for God so loved the world. Does he love the world? Yeah, absolutely. How? How much? Well, he gave his only son. Why? Well, so that whoever believes in him shouldn't perish, but have eternal life. In other words, God is trying to prevent you from perishing, keep you from destruction and death. So what he does is he sends his son, not S-U-N, he makes that rise on humanity too, S-O-N, Jesus, the beloved, you know, son, eternal word emanating from the father. He comes and puts on flesh and he's sent not just as a representation of the love of God, but as proof. As proof of the love of God. To almost be the accomplish, accomplishing factor in God loving the world. How does God complete his love for people and absolutely like that action? How is it fulfilled? Jesus comes and he does what the Father sent him to do. And God is extending eternal life to people. So God loves the world in this way. He makes provision for salvation. He does all the hard work. He makes all things what they need to be for his son to come. His son takes on human flesh, does all the work, all the heavy lifting, fulfills the law, dies our death, never makes a mistake, takes on human evil in his flesh so that all of human sin can be paid for and atoned for. And he dies on that cross, stays there till it's finished, and he Three days later after dying, rises to life. Raises to life, however you want to say it. He accomplishes our salvation. In other words, God has presented salvation on a silver platter for anyone to go, I want that. And he's, okay, just believe me for it. Just trust in my son and you'll have it. He's made, that's how much God loves the world. He's trying to prevent destruction. He desires for you to receive the free gift and he will not 
you know, force you to take it. It's your choice. But God does love the world. He makes provision for salvation by sending the son who gives his life. Now, verse 17 says, God didn't send his son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. God loving here is desiring the salvation of humanity. That is the greatest way God has loved is not just by sustaining us and keeping us and providing for us, you know, financially and food and water and housing and clothing, but giving us eternal life through his son. That is the greatest demonstration of love we'll see in Romans chapter 5, verse 8. We see a very similar heart attitude and representation of God's love in Jonah. Jonah 4.11, Jonah's very mad that God did not just obliterate Nineveh right there. He's going, what are you doing, God? You should have destroyed them. And then Jonah turns around and he like weeps over a plant that was his shade. So you're supposed to be like, Jonah's a, Jonah's a weenie at times. So this is what the Lord says after Jonah's plant is taken away from him. And Jonah weeps more and has more compassion on a plant that benefited him more than he has compassion on humanity. The Lord says, you pity the plant for which you didn't labor, nor did you make it grow. It, it came into being in a night and perished in a night. It actually did. Read the text. And this is what the Lord says, should I not pity Nineveh? This is very important. He pities Nineveh. How much? Enough to send Jonah. Who does that sound like? It sounds a lot like how this is a, a, a micro version of what God does for humanity on a grand scale through Jesus. Except Jonah didn't want to go. Jonah didn't want to save. Jonah didn't want to see them healed and turned. Jesus does. And the Lord says, Should I not, shouldn't I pity Nineveh, that great city in which there are more than 120,000 people? Now you're not going, that's small. Well, back then it was a huge city capital of Assyria, if I'm not mistaken. More than 120,000 people. Now watch, he, he says they don't even know their right hand from their left. Their moral compass is so off. They have zero sense of moral guidance. They do not know right from wrong. I've sent you to teach them because they need help. This sounds a lot like in Acts, people seeking for God. Just, just kind of helpless, just out there on their own, floating, drowning. And God sends what? Well, he sends truth. In some form to Israel, he gives the Torah. And then he eventually sends his son. He sends judges. He sends, you know, um, I would say kings, but there's only like a couple of good kings. Um, you know, he sends the prophets. He sends some good priests to teach them the difference between right and wrong. And these people in Nineveh, God has pity on them. You can almost like um, God feels bad <laughs> that they're so helpless. He wants to do something about it. That's the compassion and the love that God has on the unbelieving world. Matthew chapter 9, verse 36. This is what Jesus says, and I found it very similar to what God said about Nineveh, but this is about Israel. When Jesus saw the crowds, he had compassion for them. Do you know why? Because they were harassed, they were helpless. 
just like sheep without a shepherd. That sounds a lot like Nineveh. No one to guide them. No moral compass. No standard of right or wrong. It's relative. Sounds like our culture. And then he said to his disciples, the harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. Pray earnestly, therefore, to the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into the harvest. Fast forward about eh, 14 chapters. Jesus says this, O Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the city that kills the prophets, stones those who are sent to it. Seems to be a theme. How often would I have gathered your children together as a hen gathers her brood under her wings? You were not willing. See, your house is left to you desolate. It's their fault. It's not his. For I tell you, you will not see me again until you say, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. So over and over and over, God loves the world. God loves unbelieving people and nations and helpless, morally jacked up people so much that he sends someone. He sends the prophets. He sends a couple good kings. He sends the judges. He sends Joshua and Moses. He sends Elijah and Elisha. He sends Jonah. He sends Jesus. This is the way that God loves is he makes provision for salvation. He invites you. He calls you. He asks you, come. Come to the table. He invites you through the prophets. He invites you through his son. He offers salvation on a silver platter because that is the way God loves. He has compassion, which is another word for pity in Jonah, chapter four. That's the word there. It's a, it's a, it's a, um, we've all had that sense of like, man, I feel so bad for you. I want to do something to help you. It's not just a uh, pitiful, sucks for you. It's a, I'm moved to action because your condition is so sad and so helpless. This is the way God loves the unbelieving world. Another way that God loves the unbelieving world, just the world at large, you know, prior to us coming to Christ, this is the way God extended his love to us, is he desires salvation, absolutely, but he doesn't desire for people to perish, a lot of people have this weird concept of God as if because he's just and he's righteous and all his judgments are true that he therefore enjoys condemning and destroying and, uh, you know, killing people. Death and destruction and, and all of that is not God's intended. It was not a part of the original plan for creation. That wasn't a part of the blueprint. Sin ushered that in. It doesn't belong here. That's why Jesus weeps over Lazarus dying because death should not have any kind of place in this creation and yet it does. So God in 2 Peter 3, 9, this is what Peter says, the Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise as some count slowness. Well, uh, where's your God? I thought he's coming back. It's been a few thousand years, huh? Guess we're waiting for no one. Peter's addressing those kinds of people. He goes, just so you know, he's not slow. He's not working on your time frame. He's patient toward you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. Does God long for and desire for people to come to repentance? Yes. Is he going to control people and override their free will to move them into such a thing? No. It's your choice. It's our choice. It's humanity's choice. 
Now, you can go all kinds of weird directions, especially when you get into Calvinistic theology, when you talk about free will, and, well, you never find that actual phrase in the Bible. Don't have to. The concept's there. The Lord is not slow to fulfill His promise. He is patient. He's patient. Why is God allowing all this and waiting? Because He loves people. And He's waiting and extending His arms and opening up floodgates to allow anyone to come to him and reach repentance. That's why he's waiting, because he loves. And patience is a part of love. That's a characteristic of love. That's the first one in 1 Corinthians 13. Love is what? Love is patient. So how does God love the world? He's patiently allowing humanity to continue existing in the condition that it does until he finally says enough is enough and he's waiting for people to turn to him giving them a real opportunity first timothy 2 same idea this is good and it is pleasing in the sight of god our savior who desires all people to be saved and come to the knowledge of the truth do you know why i have a hard time holding to to a lot of calvinistic theology and this is not at all okay not at all uh, to undermine and minimize and say it's so stupid. I'm, I'm saying, do you know why I have a hard time? Not even like me working from, I find it hard to make sense of. I'm, I'm saying when I read scriptures like this, the idea that God has created some arbitrarily before they ever existed, decided they're going to be condemned with no way really out. And you can, you can talk all day around this. This is, the, this is the central, this is part of TULIP. Total depravity, unlimited election, or uh, unconditional, ah, freaking, I, I lost it. I haven't quoted it in so long. Total depravity, unconditional election, limited atonement, irresistible grace, and perseverance of the saints. Part of that theology, wherever you say it came from, part of that theology is that yes, God has created some to be destined to hell with essentially no real way to change that because he's decided that. He's predetermined them to be in that condition eternally into that. And then there are some he's eternally, he's predestined to, to come to him. In other words, he's decided who will believe and who will not. He's decided who's going to get into the kingdom and who will not and who has a chance. Then you go, well, no, everyone has a chance. Not really. Not when God has decided what everyone is going to do with their free will and they don't really get a say in that. But if everyone does have free will, then passages like this make sense to me. Where God goes, I desire all people to be saved. Okay, just override our will and make everyone. Well, you know, God has destined some and there's a purpose even for the wicked. Okay, but God desires all people to be saved and come to the knowledge of the truth. Is it true? Yeah. Yeah. What about 2 Peter 3.9? Does God desire that all should reach all should reach repentance? And he doesn't wish that any should perish? Yeah. It, 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 I, don't, I don't see how that theology, Tulip, can make any sense. To me, I understand that other people have reasoned through this and there are scholars and theologians that have talked to this, about this for years. To me, I, I can't, I don't. It doesn't make any sense. Logically, theologically, biblically, with the character of God, it's, it's so contradicts what I know is true of God. And this is not a rant. It has turned into it. This is not supposed to be a rant. But part of this is the way you make sense of God's love. A lot of people have molded their idea of God's love into their presupposed theological uh, views. 
they have a theological framework. So when they read passages about God's love, they have to make that concept of love fit into their narrative and what they've been told about God and their theological framework and denomination. And it's like, well, God has predestined some to hell and, and he's created some to be condemned into eternity and he's created some to choose him. So, so you can't, you really can't make sense of this in all reality. This becomes a passage where it's like, ah, yeah, he does, but ah, he didn't. So he doesn't or he does. Because if he's overriding people's free will here and there, it doesn't really seem like he wants it. Well, this is the difference between, uh, you know, God's, um, uh, what's it called? I am just not thinking this morning. This is the difference between God's desired will versus what will actually happen. I can't think of the actual terms people use. But, you know, people will say there's a difference between God, what God actually wants and what actually happens. I agree. I absolutely agree. But there are even more passages like Ezekiel 33:11. This is what the Lord says. As I live, I have no pleasure in the death of the wicked. So how does God love the world? He, he doesn't enjoy. It doesn't delight him. Is he just? Is he righteous? Are all his judgments correct and true and accurate and the best? Absolutely. Does he take pleasure in the death of the wicked? He says he does not. He desires that the wicked would turn from his way and live. Turn back. Turn back from your evil ways. Why will you die, O house of Israel? Why does God warn? Like they have a choice if they've already been decided, you know, predetermined to never believe and there's no real option. And you can get into the whole conversation of does foreknowledge necessitate? I don't believe that God knowing something will happen necessitates that he's the cause behind that. I don't believe that. I don't believe that knowledge itself is causal in nature. And, and, and I, I, I'm sorry, those, like if, if you hold to Calvinistic theology, I love you, love that you're here. I personally have had a hard time because I've been in that. I've been in the trenches. I've sat under the teaching of Piper and Lawson and MacArthur and, and all these wonderful men of God, for sure. But then it's like these passages where the character of God is clearly put on full display. We take these and we, we mold it into what we've already presupposed is true of God. Well, I've already been decided, you know, based on my reading of John 6, based on my reading of Romans 9, I've decided that God decides who will believe and who won't. So I have to make sense of this somehow. And I'm telling you, your concept of God's love is so important. <laughs> You've no idea. Not just the fact that he loves you, but the way you understand how God loves the world is so important. Because you are going to live according to that. I, I have seen so many people and I'm, not, I'm making a blanket statement and saying all people. I have seen so many people who seem to lack all love. They have no love. And they scoff and mock and degrade and belittle and minimize and discourage and gossip and slander. And, and, and all the while, I'm sitting back going, how can, a, how can a believer continue 
to show such lovelessness, such lack of, if you serve a God who loves the world, how can you, how can you think and talk and act in such a way, like, like the way you are? And then you get to talking to them and you start to see when they talk about God, their theology of his love is way off. Everyone who is a believer is going to live a life that is consistent with what they believe about God's love. (laughs) How you believe God loves, in what way he loves, what it looks like that he loves will really determine how you live because you're going to live from that place of what you believe his love is because you're going to try and reciprocate and duplicate that in your own life and you're imitating. If you're imitating a, a wrong view of God's love, it will be very evident. God has no pleasure in the death of the wicked. He longs for people to turn back. And you're going, well, this is just an isolated, you know, situation. Ezekiel 18.32, I have no pleasure in the death of, of, of anyone. <laughs> so turn and live. Why is God over and over inviting people to turn if, in fact, you know, people have been predetermined to never believe and have no real chance? turn but i know you won't because i really won't let you talking out of both sides of his mouth he has no pleasure in the death of anyone that's the god we serve does he bring death as a right judgment and thank you i was reading i a permissive will (laughs) that's way back there do you see the way that god loves you and i I'll go there. I'm just feeling it this morning. I'm sorry. I'm off the walls. A lot of Christians think they have an excuse to enjoy the death of certain people if they've done some moral. Like there are some people, we have a category in our mind where it's like, I'm allowed to enjoy their death and want them to die. Look how wicked they are. Look at the abomination of their life. Look at how disgustingly they live. Look at what they've done. Think of the worst person you can possibly think of. You don't have to think that long for someone to come into mind. And Christians think that they have an excuse biblically, well, because God condemns the wicked, and because technically, if you read Scripture, the death penalty is biblical, and so therefore you should delight in people dying when God does not? Well, God takes life, yeah, when it's necessary and it's a consequence of sin. Does God desire that? Well, he's just and righteous. I never said he wasn't. He is. But at the same time, he can have a sense of, I wish you would turn to me. I long for you to turn to me. That seems to be the heart of God. Titus chapter 2 verse 11. So I'm talking to those of you that will talk so highly of believers But the minute a certain unbeliever comes to mind, it's like your Christian faith goes out the window. And all of a sudden you think you have an excuse biblically because God condemns the wicked. You think you have an excuse to talk so nasty about certain people who have reached a point of moral failure that allows for you to say such things. Titus 2.11, it says, The grace of God has appeared. Be careful how you talk about people. The grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people. Nah, just believers, right? 
just Christians, just those who choose them. Now, I'm not a universalist. I'm saying salvation is available to all people legitimately. Within the Calvinistic framework I used to operate from, I used to read passages like this and be like, well, limited atonement, right? Mm, not really. Read First John 2. In fact, we're going to get there. Salvation is available to all people. Does it benefit all people? No. Does it apply to all people? No. But does God love the world so much that he brings salvation enough for if everyone in if every human being ever existed decided to believe in Jesus, decided to believe in the God of humanity and the God of heaven, if they if every human being that ever existed decided to do that, there is enough room. And there's enough salvation for that to happen some people don't want that to be true but it is first john 4 10 says in this is the love of god not that we've loved god but that he loved us this is not uh, us as children of god this is prior to us believing god loved us he sent his son to be the payment the satisfactory payment in full for our sins and this is why you can say something like Romans 5. Does God love the world so much? He sends his son. He makes payment for sin. Just if anyone, anyone wants to believe, they can. Romans 5.8 says God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. So does God love sinners? Yes. Does God love the world? Yes. Does God love unbelievers? And pagans who do the most ridiculous, heinous, abominable things. Things that you and I can't even talk about. He does love them. In the sense that he has sent his son to make payment for sin and offer salvation. And it's legitimately available. Does God love the world, ladies and gentlemen? Passage after passage would say yes. Yes, he does. Yes, he does. Now, is that the same as the way God loves his children? No. This is where we get to the fun stuff. I have, this is why I started with God loves the world. Because if I start with God loves his children differently than the world, then you guys, and sometimes me, we start to think we have an excuse to almost look down on others and have a kind of disdain or treat them differently or think, yeah, yeah, they're not as loved by God as, as we are. Yeah, you suck. And we think we have an excuse to do that. No way. Absolutely not. Absolutely not. It's interesting that what's on my mind this morning is the Calvinistic theology. I don't know why. I can't escape it. There is a, and this is not a general sweeping statement about everyone who holds to Calvinistic theology, but from, from my experience, I'll talk about me. When I did hold to that theology, TULIP, is the acronym used. When I did think that was what scripture taught until I read it objectively and honestly without the influence of people telling me what it was saying, <laughs> when I actually read it and went, oh, it's not saying what I thought it said, I realized that I, I didn't have as much love for people. Now, I'm not saying that is true for everyone who holds to that way of reading the Bible. So I'm not saying Calvinistic theology and Reformed theology just promotes lovelessness. Some people would say that. I don't necessarily agree. 
I think love can go grow cold in every perspective and theological, you know, view. There's a possibility of that. But I, I did see in my own experience in life that there was not as much love for some reason when I used to read the scriptures through a Calvinistic way of thinking and, and reading. If you're not familiar with Calvin, that's fine. You don't have to be. You don't have to be. But Malachi chapter 1 is one of those passages because it's quoted in Romans chapter 9, which we'll get to, where suddenly the love of God seems to go out the window for people who hold to the acronym TULIP and that theology. Malachi 1 and Romans 9 get very twisted. I'll say it like that. Um, I used to read it this way too, or that way. But Malachi 1, what it actually says, the Lord tells Israel, I have loved you. Now we're about to see how God distinguishes his children from the wicked, not just in the way he treats them, not just in what they have, but in the way he actually loves them. Okay? He says, I've loved you. And you say, how have you loved us? This is Israel speaking. And then the Lord says, isn't Esau Jacob's brother? Now he's referring to nations. Sometimes nations will be represented by the patriarch of that nation or the head the origin, you might say, of that nation. Esau and Jacob are both used as representatives of the nations that descend from them. So we're talking years down the road. Esau has, from him has come a nation called Edom. And Edom is interchangeably used with Esau because Esau is the patriarchal head. Same with Jacob and Israel, okay? So he goes, yet I've loved Jacob, but Esau I've hated. Now, you have seen passage after passage about God loving not just his people, but the world at large, even the worst sinner, if there is such a category. So how is it that God can hate? This passage right here confuses, frustrates, and really discourages people. He says, I've laid, I have laid waste his hill country, and I've left his heritage to jackals of the desert. Um, if Edom says we're shattered, but we will rebuild the ruins, the Lord of hosts says, no, no, you ain't. They can, you can build, but I'll just tear it down. Sounds like my kids when I try and play Legos. They don't let me build something. I keep trying to smash. I'm done playing with you guys. I'm going to go hang out with your mom. They will be called the wicked country and the people with whom the Lord is angry forever. Your own eyes shall see this and you shall say, great is the Lord beyond the border of Israel. In this context, he's talking about nations. God is going to shatter and lay waste to the nation and the heritage of Edom, a nation. Okay, I've gone through this in a Romans 9 series I did two years ago. Jacob here, the nation of Israel, is represented. The way that God loves Jacob, or the nation of Israel here, is he doesn't make a complete, utter destruction of them. He leaves a remnant. He preserves them. He loves them in the sense that they're not completely destroyed. Edom is. You go, is this arbitrarily God randomly, you know, is this a random act of violence? No. This is Edom over and over and over and over and over and over. Rebelling, treating God's people poorly, not turning, not repenting. God gives chance after chance. Okay. Okay, you've reached your limit. God is going to answer and respond to your sin and rebellion 
with something called absolute destruction with no way to rebuild. Jacob, Israel, on the other hand, they'll be preserved. And when they do get destroyed and kicked out of the land, there will be a remnant. So in this sense, we see that God loves the nation or prefers the nation of Israel over Edom. And Romans 9 will use this same passage, okay? Romans 9 will quote this passage, and it's referring to the fact that God has chosen Israel to be the vessel or the nation through which the Messiah would come through. He did not choose Esau for that. Does that mean God hates Esau? The word there is is referring to a preferring. It's, I prefer Jacob. I choose Jacob, not Esau. That's why the word hate, when it's translated in English, can frustrate people. It's the same way when Jesus tells people, you got to hate your mama and your daddy if you want to follow me. Whoa, whoa, I thought you were a loving Messiah. He doesn't mean to actually hate them. He means to prefer Jesus above even them. It's a hierarchy of, of preferring, right? So we all have preferences. We all have loyalty, degrees of loyalty and love and dedication. And Jesus is saying, be more dedicated to me. If it ever came down to choosing between mom, dad, or Jesus, you follow me. Because you prefer and choose me over them. That's what God does in Malachi chapter 1 with the nation of Israel. Has nothing to do with God arbitrarily looking at Esau and being like, you know what, boy, you're not even born yet, but when you are, I hate you. It's weird, man. But Jacob, I love. They haven't even, haven't even done anything. I haven't even done anything. Wouldn't merit that. It'd be weird. So God does love his people or at least in this context, the nation of Israel, and I'll get to the children of God, right? Because just because you're an Israelite by descent doesn't mean you're a child of God or spiritual Israel. There is a distinction. Okay, so the, the reason I show you that up front is to say, look, the way God uh, often loves differently from others is that he prefers, he chooses. God makes a distinction with his people. Hosea chapter 9, verse 15. It says, Every evil of theirs is in Gilgal. Is this the right one? Yes, okay. This is referring to Israel, if I'm not mistaken. Hosea was sent to Israel. I don't think Jerusalem yet, because Assyria, as far as I remember, see, chronologically, the prophets always escape me. I'm not going to look stupid. Hosea 9, 15. He's talking to his people. Someone in the nation of Israel. I'm pretty sure it's the southern 10 tribes, or sorry, northern, because Jerusalem's southern. Every evil of theirs is in Gilgal. <laughs> Therefore, or there, I began to hate them. Oh God, you are not allowed to hate. Look at the context. Usually you can make sense of an idea or a word instead of going to a Greek lexicon and be like, yep, it's hate. It's not arbitrary. It's not this, you know what? I absolutely, it's not the way we think of hate. It's different. Look at the way, it's the way God responds to wickedness. Because of, this is key, because of the wickedness of their deeds, I will drive them out. So what does it look like in this context for God to hate the people within his own chosen nation? Well, he drives them out. I will love them no more, and all their princes are rebels. And yet in Malachi chapter 1, there's the preserving. So there seems to be the way in which God deals with people, and even on a national scale, it's according to their deeds. At least when it comes to the temporary life or saving them from being overtaken by a nation and king, 
This says I began to. I began to. That's interesting. Because apparently the wickedness of Israel has reached a point which triggered God, God's face of favor being removed from them and now his face is against them to drive them out and remove them and destroy them. And that's what's defined as or you know, explained as him hating them. And yet he said, I will love them no more, which tells us what? At one point in the history of the nation, God did love them. But something shifted. There was a shift in their approach to God and the way they were conducting themselves. And they slowly gave themselves over to idolatry and wickedness and and unbelief and rebellion. And over and over and over and over, with that going on so long, God will cut it off. And in this sense, God's favor is not on them anymore of love. Something shifts, and now God is against them because they've chosen to be against him for so long. So, God answers that sin with consequence. Look at what Psalms 11.5 says. This is where you start to see a more clear picture of those whom God loves versus those who are not loved. Because remember, we already established God does love all. In the sense that he offers chance, sustains life, makes provision, invites, okay? But if you don't want that and rebel continually in unbelief and hate God and reject his offer and opportunity, well, Psalm 11.5 says the Lord tests the righteous. Okay, who does God test? The righteous. But his soul hates the wicked. And the one who loves violence and then you can keep going let him rain coals on the wicked fire and sulfur so in what way does god show what is called here hatred to the wicked well by bringing destruction that they have earned for themselves by bringing the death that their deeds have earned so this is god again not arbitrarily choosing to prefer one over the other this is god saying look You don't get to be chosen for my covenantal love if you are wicked and love violence. If you're against me, you're against my covenant love. That's the key characteristic of God's love for his people that is different than the unbelieving world is that we have covenantal, faithful, committed love. Whereas they have the opportunity to come into that, but after enough time, and once they reach the end of their life and they don't believe and they're wicked and they love violence, God is against them and he brings destruction they've earned. But this hatred doesn't mean no opportunity to be loved, no opportunity to come in into the love of God. God loves them. But at the same time, there is a, his face is against them until they should turn. It's, it's a, it is some weird tension, man. I, I understand why people talk about this and get so frustrated because it's as if you know with one hand he's going come to me 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 but at the same time he is currently against them hoping that they'll come and turn to him so his favor and love can be upon them in a covenant as if he's holding this is the patience the mercy that the judge justice and grace of God all all in, in one is that God patiently waits 
while prolonging his judgment, but that judgment is rightfully going to fall upon them if they don't turn and believe. Proverbs 15, 9, it says, The way of the wicked is an abomination to the Lord, but he loves him who pursues righteous righteousness. <laughs> so you're going to see now God loving one, preferring choosing one, and God not loving another in that way. The way or the lifestyle of the wicked, it's against God. It's an abomination to him. It's like nasty. It's growth. But he loves someone who pursues righteousness. So you might go, but I thought God loves all people. He does. But not in the same way. Remember, the unbelievers have, the unbelieving world rather, at large, has the opportunity to be saved. They've had made, God has made provision for their salvation. He sustains their life so they can seek him. He wants to spare them from death. But the way God loves the righteous is in a covenantal kind of way. You'll see that in a minute. I think in the next couple verses. Psalm chapter 5. It says, The boastful shall not stand before your eyes. You hate all evildoers. So again, there's that tension of God being against or not preferring and destruction coming upon the evildoers but at the same time, God desiring for them to be saved. You destroy those who speak lies. The Lord abhors the bloodthirsty and deceitful man. But I, the psalmist says, through the abundance of your steadfast love, one to your house, I will bow down toward your holy temple in the fear of you. So there is a difference. Again, those who are wicked, evildoers, speak lies, and God is against them. Yet at the same time, God wants them to come to him. And then there are those who have received the call, have believed in him, trust in, in God. And the steadfast love God has is for them, not for, the, not for the wicked. So guess what? God does love the world, not the way he loves the righteous. Jonah 2.8, it says, Those who pay regard to vain idols forsake their hope of steadfast love. This might be the most pivotal verse in this whole message. Is that those essentially who are against God, they're choosing to forsake the hope of entering into steadfast love and covenantal love. It's their choice. But God has loved them by extending the invitation to come into it. If they do not come into that, they lock themselves by their own free will into a condition of being separated from God's covenantal love and being outside of that. In other words, every person has a chance to come into the covenantal love of God. But once you die in a condition of separation, you lose your chance and you lose the love of God with it. Which is a bummer. And we don't want that for people just as much as God does not want that for people. Look at how God reveals himself to Moses on Mount Sinai. It says, The Lord passed before, this is Exodus 34. The Lord passed before Moses and proclaimed, The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful. I love that he starts with that. A God gracious, slow to anger, and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. This is the love of God for all people. There is steadfast love enough to cover all of humanity and more. 
and God is merciful and gracious to hold back the judgment they deserve while inviting them to come in. But until they do, he is against their way of life and their condition. Until they believe, then they can come into covenant to love. It says he keeps steadfast love for thousands. In what way? Forgiving iniquity, transgression and sin. He will by no means clear the guilty. Visiting the iniquity of the fathers and the children and the children's children to the third and fourth generation. In other words, people will be held accountable for their own sin. So God has faithful, steadfast, covenantal love available for anyone. Forgiveness of sin. But if you are guilty and rebel and reject this offer, there's nothing but condemnation and punishment for sin. So while there is tension in this whole conversation, it's on us to do our best to make sense of how to how to really, um, I guess, grasp this as much as we can. Revelation 3.9, it says, Behold, I will make those of the synagogue of Satan who say they are Jews and are not, but they're lying. I will make them come and bow down before your feet. They will learn that I've loved you. So you don't love them, God? No, he does. Just not the way he loves his people. Children of God, born again through faith in, in the Messiah. God's love for them will be proven to everyone else who doesn't want it. So what you'll see and what you have seen so far is that God loving his children specifically, not just humanity in general, his children, it means he chooses them to be recipients of his covenantal love. We'll see this in Psalm 47, 4, more passages, Psalm 78, verse 68, Psalm 146, verse 8, 1 Thessalonians 1, 4, okay? And so God has steadfast love for those who follow him. This is what we call the covenant love of God. It's committed, steadfast, faithful. There's terms and conditions, you might say, when it comes to how to come into this. Well, believe in my son. He's done all the hard work. He's done all the heavy lifting. And you'll enter into this covenantal love. Exodus 20, verse 6. God shows steadfast love to thousands. He says, thousands of those who love me and keep my commandments. So he's explaining what it looks like to be someone who believes. Is there is a pursuit, a desire to obey the commands of God. Different heart posture than the wicked, huh? And so, so steadfast love is for them, those who uh, trust in God, and then their life will be evidence to that faith. First Kings 3.6, Solomon said, You have shown great and steadfast love to your servant, David. And you go, why? Because he walked before you in faithfulness. So again, there's no... It's not like God is arbitrarily going, you get to come into covenant with me. Sorry, Jerry, you, you suck. That's not how God works. God responds to the faith of the individual with covenant love. We see this with David. And the way David's faith is explained is David walks before God in faithfulness, in righteousness, in upright heart. Was David always this way? No, heck no. Read the account of David's life. 
But there's faithfulness, there's righteousness, and there's uprightness that characterizes David. And it says, you have kept for him this great and steadfast love. Do you see it? This great steadfast covenant love is for a select kind of person, someone who trusts in God. And how does God, you know, demonstrate this love for David? Well, he gives David a son to sit on his throne to this day. Now, Solomon thinks it's him. Um, but it's really Jesus later. That's the main son. 2 Samuel seven fourteen. This is interesting. Um, this is God speaking to uh, David, I believe, about Solomon. But mainly, it's about Jesus. So it's like Solomon will immediately take the throne after David, but we're really looking to Jesus, the greater David, the greater Solomon, the true son of David. And the Lord says, I will be to him a father, he shall be to me a son, okay? And it's talking about Solomon here, when he commits iniquity, I will discipline him with the rod of men, with the stripes of the sons of men, but my steadfast love will not depart from him, as I took it from Saul, whom I put away from before you. And your house and your kingdom shall be made sure forever before me. So in what way does God show uniquely different love to David and his family? God establishes David's house. God establishes David's kingdom. And he says, it will be made sure forever, with the kids scream and bloody murder in the background, if you can hear it. Your throne shall be established forever. And so this is the way God demonstrates his covenantal love to David. Is he chooses, remember, it's preferential. God is preferring, God is choosing to enter into covenantal love with David and ultimately Jesus, who is the, the true son of David. Um, I'm not going to go here. I'm going to go Nehemiah 1.5 because we've pretty much talked about Solomon and David enough. I know this can be a lot of scripture, but when you, if, if you're going to hear something that you in, um, initially disagree with, you, you should have scripture to to prove you, uh, to prove to you what I'm saying. Nehemiah 1.5 says, And I said, O Lord God of heaven, the great and awesome God who keeps covenant and steadfast love with those who love him and keep his commandments. So again, who does God give this unique, steadfast covenant love to? Those who love him and keep his commandments. Very simply, those who believe and trust in him. And of course, the obedience is going to be the evidence of that faith. Psalm 25 verse 10, all the paths of the Lord are steadfast love and faithfulness. And you're like, yes, <clears throat> for everyone, for, for those who keep his covenant and his testimonies. So there is steadfast love, faithful love available in the form of a covenant that God is inviting anyone into, but it only benefits and applies to those who actually respond with faith. And in that context, the faith is keeping his testimonies, doing what he says, obeying. Not to be saved or stay saved, but as proof of one's inward faith and heart change. Psalm 3610, it says, Oh, continue your steadfast love to those who know you and your righteousness to the upright of heart. So this is, again, kind of like David. 
David knows God. David was upright in heart in terms of like he was a man after God's heart. Well, God goes, okay, steadfast love for you, my guy, and righteousness. And the psalmist is saying, God, continue that. Continue pouring that out and giving that to people. Again, it's a select kind of person, not just all people. Daniel 9, 4 says, I prayed to the Lord my God and made confession, saying, O Lord, the great and awesome God, sounds like Nehemiah, who keeps covenant and steadfast love with those who love him and keep his commandments. Again, who is God's covenant love for? Those who actually walk after him, which is evidence of inward faith. Faith is the way into covenantal love. So you go, I, I don't understand this whole covenant to love thing. You're telling me that God loves the world, but not the same way as his children because his children get covenant love? What does that even mean? Here's what this means. God treats his children or loves his children differently in one, two, three, four, f- at least five or six different ways I'm going to show you, okay? So this is what Psalm 91 says. It says, because he holds fast to me in love, I will deliver him. This is God speaking. I should have clarified that. I will deliver him. I will protect him because he knows my name. When he calls to me, I will answer him. I'll be with him in trouble. I will rescue him and honor him. With long life, I will satisfy him and I'll show him my salvation. All these different things God does for who? For the one who holds fast to him in love. So the way that God shows covenantal love to those who believe and trust in him is God delivers them. God protects them. Right? In other words, this person trusts in God, knows his name, holds fast to God, and God goes, when he calls to me, I'll answer. I'll be with him in trouble. I'll rescue him. I'll satisfy him with salvation and long life. That is not true, my friends, of the unbeliever outside of Christ. Does God love them? Absolutely. Are all those promises for them? Nope. Not until they believe and look to Christ for the salvation and all the beautiful things that accompany this covenantal love. Psalm 103, 11 through 13. Not only does God give security and salvation in that sense, that's how he loves his children differently, but he also loves his children differently by forgiving their sins. Psalm 103, it says, For as high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is his steadfast love to those who what? Fear him. As far as the east is from the west, so far does he remove our transgressions from us. As a father shows compassion to his children, so the Lord shows compassion. All these instances of compassion or love, steadfast covenantal love, right? And it's a specific kind of person, guys. The person who fears God. Covenantal love, the steadfast love, compassion, removing sin. That's only for those who trust in God, which is explained as fearing him appropriately. Appropriate reverence and respect. So does God love the world? Yes. Does he love the world the same way he loves his people? No. 
No. He wants to forgive their sin if they would come. He's willing. He's made provision. He's made it possible. He's inviting them to come and have their sins forgiven, to come and find refuge in this security and life he offers and this salvation if they don't want it. Then they're only loved on the level of God has made provision for you to be saved and you did nothing with it, so you don't get to enter into covenantal love with him. Another way God loves his children differently is he preserves from destruction. The Lord preserves all those who love him. When you see these, these words like, he, love me, hold fast to me in love, keep my commandments, they're all essentially different ways of saying the same thing. The one who trusts in the Lord, who has faith in the God of Israel, the God of heaven. The Lord preserves them, but the wicked he will destroy. Does he want to? Is he excited to do that? Does he take pleasure in the destruction of the wicked? We've seen over and over he does not. Why does he do it? Because people have their own free will uh, decisions to make. And the consequences are something that they're not in control of. And God is just. And his ways are right. And his judgment, judgments are true. But that doesn't mean he delights in the destruction and the condemnation of the wicked. Ezekiel tells us that. Over and over we see that. He does not want people to perish. Contrary to most, I'm not going to call it any denomination. Never mind. Didn't do it. Psalm 103, 17 and 18. It says, The steadfast love of the Lord is from everlasting to everlasting. Now, it sounds like God will always love everyone, doesn't it? It says, for those who fear him. His righteousness to children's children. You're like, oh, wow, it's awesome. Uh, to those who keep his covenant and do his commandments. All these different ways of saying, the person who believes, looks to, trusts in, has faith in God. It's that simple. It's through faith. Whether you explain that as fearing or doing his commandments or loving God or holding fast to him, the steadfast love of God is available to anyone. But one of the differences between us and the world is that God actually gives his righteousness to his children. That's an expression of God's love. I'll forgive your sin. I'll wipe away your debt. I'll pay for your iniquity. And I'll give you, this is the imputed righteousness of Jesus. The last and final way, and we could probably go through the scriptures for a long time, going through all the different ways God loves his children just, you know, differently than the world, right? But the last one I want to bring up is John chapter 14. <laughs> Jesus answered him, if anyone loves me, He'll keep my word. So if you thought that was just Old Covenant language and Old Testament language, it's not. It continues into the New Testament. New Covenant stuff, baby. All about keeping the word of Jesus, keeping the truth of God, obeying his commandments. What commandments those ends up being? That ends up being, rather? Discussion for another day. But if you are interested in knowing my thoughts on the Law of Moses and the Ten Commandments, and the Torah and what we do with that and Jesus fulfilling that. I've done a series. I believe it's called just the law of Moses, maybe. The Mosaic Law. Go check it out. 
So Jesus says, if anyone loves me, he'll keep my word. So what's the evidence of loving Jesus? Well, obedience. And the first thing we do is obey by believing. Belief is the main commandment God calls people to do. Then from that will flow the other things God calls us to. So my father will love him. Oh, interesting. It sounds like God's love is kind of conditional there. Doesn't it? Doesn't it seem like the love in this passage seems to be conditional? If it's a condition, someone loves me and keeps my word, which very simply is to believe and look to Jesus for salvation and righteousness, he'll keep my word, right? And my father will love him. We will come to him and make our home with him. And you, I don't, I don't like this because God's love is unconditional. In what sense? Well, he loves everyone equally. In what sense? If you mean he makes salvation available, sends his son, desires for people to be saved and rescued and not perish, absolutely, that's unconditional. Well, uh, God loves his people. We didn't do anything to earn it. Doesn't mean it's no condition. Jesus is the condition. So, if you want to enter into covenantal love, absolutely, it's not conditioned upon you. It's not based on your merit your performance, it is conditioned upon his son. And the way God loves here, conditionally, is by coming and making his home, Jesus says, our home, in the person who believes. So I know this can frustrate people. When you throw on language like God's love is conditional, you have to ask in what sense? And for who? And why? Well, it's conditioned upon his son. He did all the heavy lifting. He did all the work. He died our death, paid our debt, took our sin, in, you know, allowed human evil to indwell in his body so that it could be penalized in our place. He did raise from the grave back to life. I'd say he did a lot. So the covenantal love of God now, for us who believe, is conditioned upon Jesus. But it's also not available to anyone, you have to believe. So in that sense, this steadfast love of God, the covenantal love of God to forgive, to make righteous, to indwell you by his spirit, it is conditioned upon faith. Romans 5.5, 5. I know people's categories are getting busted. It is what it is. I, I can't do anything about it. Romans 5.5, 5, it says, hope doesn't put us to shame. You know Why? Because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who's been given to us. Notice in both examples I gave, John 14 and Romans 5, the Spirit of God indwelling a person permanently, sealing a person, which is different than the Spirit of God coming upon people in the Old Testament. But the indwelling of the Spirit is connected to the love of God. Where now we see the Spirit of God filling us is an expression of God's love. It's evidence of God's love. It helps us to know we are loved by God. The Spirit of God, He indwells us. God doesn't just make His home in anyone. Those who believe, God goes, Woo! Let me express my covenantal love to you in this way. I'm going to fill you with my Spirit. So you have my presence everywhere you go. And it's awesome. God's love has been poured into our hearts. What does that mean? Does that mean God's love is not poured into unbelievers' hearts? It sure seems that way, doesn't it? So we have to really 
dice and slice these things rightly. God's love, covenantal love to forgive, to make righteous, to preserve from destruction, to give eternal life, all of that, that's for those who believe. And it's conditioned upon his son, and it's applied to them, seemingly conditionally through their faith. But God does love the world. So the next time someone tells you, well, God loves everyone, just smile at them and say, what What do you mean? Well, the next time someone says, you know, well, God's love is unconditional, you go, what do you mean? Well, the next time someone goes, well, you know, God just calls us to love everyone, you go, does God? Well, yeah, okay. Let's look at that. Because in whatever way God loves I want to love like that. And yes, God does love his children differently than the world. Over and over and over. All right. That's all I got for you guys today. I don't even know how to end that. (laughs) I don't know how to end that. But that's something a lot of you are just going to need to meditate on for the rest of the day. Because if anything, this should not boost your ego. This should not inflate you and be like, I'm so amazing. It should humble you. You should be left in awe of the great love God has chosen to give you. The way that God has chosen to love you should leave you breathless. Just, I don't even know what to say exactly. Just enjoy being loved by God. This is why I ended this way. Because we want to end on a note where it's like, what makes the love of God so special? You and I, I just explained to you why. But now that you have a better understanding, you can go and be loved by God better. You can live as someone who has been loved and is loved and is continue, continuing to be loved by God every day. And this is what I want for you. I want you to learn how to be loved by God. I want you to learn how to enjoy his love and and understand that it is fundamentally different from the way that God loves the unbelieving world around you. Because when you just make a blanket statement that God loves, it seems to almost minimize the love of God in my life as a believer, which I thought I was different if God loves everyone. Oh, he does, but it's different. So praise God for that. Spend some time in prayer. Meditate on the scriptures. Worship and thank the Lord for what he's done. That you and I get to be satisfied by his love. Deeply fulfilled. Everything we need in life. The love of God and being loved by him is more than enough. So that's how we're going to end this series. Is that we are loved by God. Differently than the world. If you didn't already know, this is Above Reproach Ministry. It's an online ministry. I got a wife and two kids. I am not 16, ditching high school. I am 30 years old. I know, right? Crazy. So if you want to know more about this ministry, check it out. We have a bunch of free resources. If you struggle reading the Bible, if you get frustrated, you don't know where to start, you can't stay focused, you get bored, whatever it is, okay, you get overwhelmed, We have a completely free 40-day Bible study course you can take right now. Completely free. 
ah, it'll tell you to log in with your Gmail, whatever it is. We have a 27-day, an 11-day, a 40-day. So if you really want to learn how to read the Bible in depth online, it's free. It's self-paced. You can take those courses whenever you want. We also have free devotional studies. You can read throughout the week. They're they're based on different keywords in Ephesians, and will hopefully teach you uh, the scriptures in a in a fun yet deeper way in a, in a devotional kind of sense where you can read that throughout the week. We also have free Bible study worksheets where if you're reading a specific book of the Bible and you're like, I need help, it'll hopefully help you. Um, all the sermons that we do here, like this is the end of the Beloved series. And so every time I finish the series, I put all the sermon notes out there. You can access all of them. By the way, in the description below, I should have said this earlier, if you guys ever want to use these sermons for small groups, home groups, Bible studies, uh, what I'm going to start doing is in the description of this YouTube video, uh, you'll be able to find my exact sermon outline, all the notes I have. This is the exact sermon note outline that I use for this message with some small group questions at the bottom. So if you want to watch this with someone or you know, go through this with a small group, there's some questions you can ask at the end and hopefully it'll be helpful um, because I'm thinking more in, in that way lately, thinking about more people who are using these as resources. Um, and then if you would like to join our online church, uh, Above Reproach Online Church is on the Discord app. Okay, You can just click this link. It'll take you to our online church. And if you'd like to get a copy of my book, Fruitful, The Essential Keys to Living the Most Satisfying, Abundant Christian Life This Side of Heaven, you can always sample it here to see if it's worth your time. We have a podcast, so all these messages are on podcast. We have a second podcast, Above Reproach Church Podcast. We have a creator's channel for those of you that are Christian creators. I haven't uploaded in a minute just because the madness of moving to South Carolina lately. And uh, the last thing is if you want to give to this ministry, we're completely crowdfunded. God provides what we need, but all the free resources we release out there into the world for anyone and everyone is only available because of generous supporters like you guys. So if you want to uh, give to this ministry and all that God is doing here, you can give, you could send a check to PO Box 338. That's going to change real soon when I move in the next week. Um, you can give through uh, debit or credit card straight off the website right here. PayPal, Cash App, Venmo, uh, be a monthly supporter on Patreon and you'll get access to some uh, resources that we have, some cool perks and benefits. And then you can always get some church merch. You can represent Jesus on your body and uh, get some mugs, get some of the downloadable programs we have, and then sweatshirts, everything we got as ways to uh, kind of supplement what the Lord is doing here and um, make it keep going. All right? So that's all I have for you guys today. Someone has a question. Um... Elizabeth, I'd love to answer your question. I'll, I'll do my best. No promises. Um, let's full screen this mug. I have a question. I don't know if you can answer it, though. I'll do my best. Do my best. Go ahead and ask away, Elizabeth, because we got some time. We ended a little early today, which is good sometimes. So let me know what you guys took away. Do that for me in the chat, whether you're on TikTok, Facebook, YouTube. Let me know in the comments what really stood out to you today. What did you take away from today's message? What is something that you didn't know before? What is something that you're really going to take and apply to your life? Let me know.
I'll wait for uh, Elizabeth's question. And if it doesn't come through, we'll just end here. All right. Cool, 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 cool beans, beans. Cool, 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 cool beans. <laughs> Marcus says, great. Good to know I'm not the only weirdo out there. You should know by now, Marcus. You're not the only weirdo. You're the main one, but you're not the only one. Ron says, are you a reformed Christian? In some ways, in some ways, sometimes reformed theology can be such a general term. No one really knows how to even explain what it means anymore. Elizabeth says, okay, so I've been married three times. I was saved. I remarried my third husband after I got saved. Okay, gotcha. I'm waiting for more information. Did I do the correct thing in God's eyes? I can't tell you, Elizabeth. And that's probably why you said you probably can't answer it. You're right. I I can't definitively say whether or not you did the right thing. I don't know the circumstances. I don't know the context. I don't know what you were going through. I don't know about both guys, all three. I don't know the condition of your faith. What does scripture teach about that? Again, that's going to vary based on what the circumstances were. Um, but I, you can get some helpful wisdom, Elizabeth, and guidance and, and clarity if you join our online church on the Discord app. Um, and you can just you know ask your question, hopefully get some feedback and godly counsel from the right people. Don't just believe what everyone says. Test it against the scriptures. And don't just trust everyone because... Can have some weirdos on there, like Marcus, right? So we'll have to talk through that together on the Discord app if you want to. But yeah, you're right. I can't really answer that because that is a very specific situation that has a bunch of moving parts. So, well, guys, Christian gave us 20. My guy, Christian. Thank you, buddy. That's all I'm going to say. Thank you for what you do here. You keep up the amazing work. You awesome. Awesome man. All right. That's all I got today. I'll see you guys Wednesday for the live Q&A. I may or may not be here next Monday live. Might have to push it out depending on where we're at moving wise, but I'm planning on being here Monday. All right, I'll do my best. And we're going to start a new series either on prayer or on eternal security. And I'm not sure which one yet, so um, prayers appreciated. And Elizabeth, jump in the Discord app and come and talk with us. So. James says, eternal security. Okay. We'll see. We will see. All right, that's it. I'm out. Bye, guys.